Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath, and I'm coming to you from the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C. As you know, this is a program that we've been doing every 30 days, and we try to cover a developmental area of OSHA law in about 30 minutes. And we've been doing this for over seven years. We're in our eighth year. This is our about 87th episode. And we have a great topic today. Uh, we decided that because the elections are less than about two weeks away, this is October 21, 2020, and the uh, elections are about uh, two weeks away, that this would be a great episode to discuss how the elections would impact the field of workplace safety and workplace safety law. And I'm joined today in that conversation by one of the most renowned figures in occupational safety and health policy, the Vice President for Workplace Policy at the US Chamber of Commerce, Mark Friedman. Mark, welcome. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. Thank you very much, Manish. Happy to be with you all. Well, Mark, you may not know this, but uh, as I said, we've, we're uh, well into our 80th episode and we've libraried all of these uh, prior episodes on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. So over 80 episodes are, can be found there. A lot of great topics, almost all of them still very relevant and educational. This is a program that we've been doing for quite some time and we do it complimentary. And the only thing we ask of our participants is by way of tuition is that they spread the good word when they get an invitation to the next OSHA 3030 to spread the good word to at least three others who are safety and health professionals or in-house counsel and to make sure that, uh, that by spreading the good word, the program continues to, to go forward uh, into maybe the next eight years. So Mark, again, thank you for joining us. Let's just jump right into uh, all of the many things that we could chat about. Uh, Mark, when it comes to OSHA law, I think I could talk to you for hours and still not uh, feel exhausted by it uh, because you, you, you seem to stay up to date on everything and to have uh, relevant experience and insight on everything. Let's just start with the election. And generally speaking, how do you see the election impacting the field of workplace safety going forward after the November election? Well, I guess there's a, several different um, angles that we can take on this question. Um, I guess the most immediate issue in play is the question of whether OSHA will be issuing some type of uh, temporary or emergency temporary or new standard with respect to protecting employees from exposure to the coronavirus. Um, that's probably the thing that will be most directly impacted by the election. I think as everybody knows, there's language in the House that's passed that would uh, direct OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard that, as I've been describing it, would convert the recommendations and guidance from the CDC into mandatory requirements. So no longer would employers be required, uh, would be judged on whether they're protecting their employees under the general duty clause. They would now be judged on how they're protecting their employees uh, by having to follow all the different requirements of the guidances that have been issued. Um, as you can understand, that's a major shift in, in the whole OSHA requirement landscape. Um, the Democrats, as I said, have clearly pushed for this. They want to see it, that this is their view. This is their view of the world as to how to protect employees. Um, if there's a Democrat administration, I think it's a fair guess. It, it, it would be 
an, an easy expectation that they would um, pursue such a regulation. Um, and I don't think they would have to wait for Congress to tell them to do it. A Democrat administration would be thinking along these lines and, and we could expect them to, to move forward on such a regulation. One of the real challenges, Mark, and I think you're right about everything you said, one of the real challenges about that is when you look at the three or four states that are considering emergency temporary standards, Virginia was the first to actually publish a final emergency temporary standard, Michigan, and they're in the works in Washington State and California. The reference to CDC guidelines is going to be problematic because of court decisions that say you can't incorporate other standards by reference if those standards are continue to evolve. You're going to be locked in to the standard, to the guideline from the CDC that was in place at the time of the, of the standard. And so, so as we've seen the CDC continually change significant elements, material aspects of its guidance when it comes to coronavirus control. And, uh, and so an emergency temporary standard has to accommodate for this constantly changing point of reference at the CDC. Well, you're right. I mean, when, when the content of the regulation is driven by the CDC guidances and, and to some degree OSHA guidances as well, um, there's a lot in play there. And I think the advocates for this rule try to couch it in terms of saying, well, you know, it'll maintain the flexibility of the CDC guidance because it'll reference it. And as the guidance changes, so will the obligations on employers, which isn't very comforting to employers who are trying to figure out what they have to do and, you know, how they're going to be evaluated. That's um, right. I mean, change involves capital infrastructure changes as well as material changes to the plants, as well as work practices. Right. Then the CDC in, goes and changes everything again. In the current environment, the employer is... Uh, held accountable for complying under the general duty clause, um, you know, a recognized hazard using recognized methods of protection. Um, and then the specifics of, about what that protection uh, constitutes basically come out of the guidances and the, and the employer has flexibility and the opportunity to tailor the specific types of protection to their workplaces. If uh, a new standard is issued um, and let's be let, let me just delve into that for just a moment if it's an administration that does it then they would probably i would imagine have to do it under some form of a rulemaking procedure um, which in some ways gives us an advantage versus the way congress had envisioned it which was basically shoving something out the door uh, without an opportunity for comment so a administration approach on this could have some advantages and, and could op offer some opportunities for interested parties to participate. Um, but back to the whole question of the substance, it will be driven by the guidances and will basically make those now mandatory and therefore employers will be required to comply with, will be evaluated and held accountable for whether they've, made, they've met all the different requirements and all the different uh, points in the different guidances, which is a much different enforcement uh, and, and compliance landscape than, than what currently exists. Well, it's great that you mention Congress because that brings us uh, round to the next question that I had for you, Mark. Uh, I know you've, you've been on the Hill and you're now working with the US Chamber of Commerce and uh, perhaps one of the most important voices when, when uh, we consider all the 
uh, voices that's, that need to be heard on the Hill. But having been on both sides, I'm curious what you think of the congressional efforts we've seen over the past four years to take a hand in the development of OSHA standards and where you think the right balance should be between Congress and OSHA when it comes to not just developing general uh, overarching safety and health policy, but the specifics of OSHA rulemaking. Well, let me let me start by saying it's appropriate for Congress to take a role in shaping uh, an agency's actions and agenda. I mean, that's the role that Congress has, and it's an oversight role, uh, and it's a legislative role. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that we see this come up from time to time. I, I think what's unfortunate is how safety policy has gotten politicized and in some ways weaponized. Um, I think there's broad agreement across all the different parts of the political spectrum that there needs to be a good consistent um, approach to, to workplace safety. OSHA is the agency in charge of setting that agenda. Uh, I think people differ as to exactly what role OSHA should play. Um, should it be purely enforcement? Should it be enforcement plus support and, and assistance? Uh, is OSHA responsible for making sure every workplace is safe? That's a debatable point. I think the obligation falls more on employers than it does the agency. But the employers need the agency to, to provide information and support and assistance uh, and, and be there as a, as a resource as much as, it, as any type of an enforcement role. Um, so it's appropriate for Congress to be involved. What gets frustrating is when, as I said, this gets too politicized and the two sides aren't able to find a way forward. So for instance, and, and you were part of this process, we had a situation where there was a bill proposed in the House by the Democrats to force OSHA to issue a standard on workplace violence. I was called uh, to testify at that hearing, you were right. right. You, you were part of the hearing and, and so you heard what was said. And I came away from that hearing thinking the, the people that the Democrats called to make the case that there should be a regulation um, presented some very compelling stories, compelling and, and quite frankly, uh, sympathetic stories. And the Republican on the committee, Representative Bradley Byrne from Alabama, who's the, the top Republican, came away from that hearing and said, I get it. Let's work together. Let's find a way to, to come up with a bill that tells OSHA to do a standard. The problem was the bill that was proposed was far too prescriptive towards telling OSHA what to do. It didn't give them any flexibility in how to shape the regulation. Uh, it made a lot of things mandatory that, that should have been um, recommendations in terms of how OSHA proceeded. And it wasn't a good workable bill. The Republican staff on that committee made a very valiant effort uh, to work with the Democratic staff to come together and find a bill that could be passed. Sadly, no bill was, was agreed to. And therefore the issue still stands as, as unregulated and, and there's no real um, direction on how employers should protect their employees against workplace violence. Um, the yeah. thing that troubled me, Mark, that, was that's that... a point where the where the process just breaks down, and both sides run to their corners and 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 really don't come up, uh, don't don't come together and find a solution. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the reasons, as you said, was that the process was not this is the end result that we need the agency to get to, but to prescribe what a standard should look like to essentially draft a, a draft OSHA standard incorporated into a bill and then direct OSHA to pass that standard. And yet the agency is charged with being the administration resp uh, agency responsible for highly technical issues of safety and health and also to, to facilitate the notice and comment process so that stakeholders from all sides can weigh in with their expertise and their viewpoints and their experience. And uh, the, the congressional effort that you're describing uh, sort of shortcutted that and said, no, this is what the standard should look like. We'll, we'll write it for you. And we see that with that workplace violence bill. We saw it with the heat uh, stress uh, initiative as well. And, and again, with Congress's attempt to mandate a coronavirus emergency temporary standard. So I hadn't seen these kinds of initiatives in prior Congresses with that kind of frequency. Is that consistent with your experience, Mark? Well, the, the, the real difference is which party is in the majority and in particular in the House. And, and uh, how do they view the agency during that well, administration? I mean, let, let's be honest here. When the Democrats are in the majority, OSHA is a high priority. And they look, you know, and, and they, they, as you mentioned, frequently put out uh, efforts and bills to direct OSHA's activities. The Republicans aren't as inclined to do that, so we don't see those types of efforts during the Republican majorities. Um, I think one of the interesting shifts that we saw during this most recent period of the Democrats uh, being in control is instead of trying to push some broad overarching OSHA reform bill, um, previous efforts have been called the Protecting America's Workers Act, they were going for the more specific targeted bills as, as we just discussed, the workplace violence and the heat bill and then uh, now the, the OSHA, um, the uh, Emergency Temporary Standard Bill. So they're, they're not quite looking towards the broad OSHA reform agenda as they were before. They're trying to do things in a more targeted way. So the upshot is that the elections could have a huge impact, but not necessarily just in the outcome of the presidential election, but how the Senate and Congress uh, play out as, as compared to the administration uh, that, that well, put, installs people in OSHA. Right, right. And, you know, there's a couple other layers to this, to this question I was looking to get into. Um, you know, obviously, if we get a, de a Democrat administration, a Biden administration, OSHA will be looking a lot different than it does in a Republican administration. Um, and we can pretty much assume that it's going to come back to a lot of the, the concepts that um, we saw in the Obama years in terms of emphasis on enforcement and desire to regulate and, and some of these other themes that we saw in play. Um, what approach a Biden administration OSHA takes to its relationship with the employer community, I think is, is an open question. Um, it, it's hard to tell exactly how that's going to look because we don't know who the principals will be. Um, we would like to think that they would recognize the importance of working with the employer community in these efforts. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll hope to see whether that comes through. The, the, the other, one other point I want to make on, on this whole relationship between Congress and, and OSHA, um, much of what we've seen in the recent years with respect to the Trump administration and the House Democrat majority is all built around the idea of the two sides being opposed to each other. So the House is putting out bills because they want to force a Trump OSHA to do something. Um, if there's a Biden administration 
and presuming that the, the Democrats retain control of the House, whether that dynamic continues is, is I think something of an interesting question. They may not feel the need to jam a Biden administration OSHA the way they felt the need to try and force a Trump administration OSHA. So we may not see the same level of activity. Um, because you may see may, a restoration of an oversight role rather than oversight over probably. They, they may not feel like they want to push their friends, if you can use that term here, uh, as aggressively as what they did against the, the Trump administration. So it's a little bit of an open question. We'll have to see you know, if that plays out. Mark, this may only deserve a few seconds, but I'm curious. There's been a perennial effort to try and pass a bill that allows for dedicated funding for VPP. VPP is the Voluntary Protection Program. Uh, it was never given its own dedicated funding. So from administration to administration, the funding could go up or down. And I'll start by saying this, a reasonable person could think that because the Voluntary Protection Program is essentially a, a mark that is earned by establishing best practices in all aspects of workplace safety and health management, that, that you would think that regardless of the administration, this should enjoy bilateral support. Yet historically, as a matter of fact, the bill has not been uh, successful. And I'm curious what your thoughts are, not only about what I've just said, but also your, your prediction as to the prospects of the bill should both the House, the Senate and the White House uh, all become of, of a similar party, same party. Well, I think the easy way to answer that is if you couldn't pass it with Republican majorities, I don't see any way you're going to pass it with Democrat majorities. Um, it, the VPP program is often held out as the, you know, the gold star, if you will, notwithstanding the color of the star on your screen, um, you know, for good employers. But Democrats have typically not looked upon it with favor because in a way it limits OSHA's ability to do enforcement. It basically says, here are the best companies. They don't need as much attention from OSHA. And that question of limiting OSHA's ability to go into companies is always a sticking point uh, with respect to the Democrats and some of their friends. Which is odd because the limitation is only on the random inspections. It certainly does not limit them on complaints or fatalities. And, catastrophes. Well, and, and the other approach, and we saw this in the Obama years, was that's fine. We're going to keep VPP in play, but we're going to make it much harder to get into. And I, I got to say, I think that that's odd. I think a reasonable person would say that's the kind of thing that the Democratic administration OSHA of the last eight years, the prior eight years, would have favored because companies are striving and seeking to You, you could say a lot of things, but, and the, but the political reality is that that's not how it's seen. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, I think you're you're uh, assigning a dim prospects in the next, at least in the next two years. Yeah, I mean, from your lips to, uh, to, to Bobby Scott's ears. So a reference to the representative from our great Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, uh, the consultation program, another one where you would think that the opportunity to, for employers to access uh, OSHA would be favored by both Democratic and Republican OSHA administrations. And, uh, and yet, historically, there has been a, a great deal of capacity to understand the value that this brings to improving safety and health by Republican OSHA administrations, uh, and less so from Democratic OSHA administrations, particularly the, the preceding eight years under the Obama administration's OSHA. Mark, your thoughts about the effect of the upcoming election on OSHA's cons consultation program? Well, I mean, I think both types of administrations 
see value in this. I can recall the Obama OSHA promoting it very aggressively. Um, their problem was a, a question of credibility and that I think companies and employers were hesitant to put themselves, in, you know, to, to, to make themselves available to OSHA when the message coming out of the Obama OSHA was, um, you know, we're all about enforcement. Even though OSHA is very clear on saying there's a firewall between the consultation program and the enforcement activities. But as I said, they had a credibility problem there and, and employers just weren't comfortable coming forward um, given the messaging that was coming out of the agency. So there's uh -huh. a there. And I think both, both types of administrations understand it. The question is, what else are they doing that interferes with, with the willingness of employers to come forward and put themselves in that program? Right, right. Well, we have another question from one of the members of the OSHA 3030 community. My colleague, uh, David Servati, is curious to ask you, you, you've heard this concept of a regulatory bill of rights. Everyone knows about the constitutional bill of rights. The idea or concept of a regulatory bill of rights is to impose on administrative agencies the same rigor uh, of observance and respect for the underlying concepts of the Bill of Rights in their application of rules in enforcement inspections, but also in the rulemaking process. Things like the idea that somebody who's inspected ha uh, or under an investigation has the right to be presumed innocent until uh, there's proof of guilt. And that, that at, at the, uh, I think maybe one of the applications in the OSHA context might be these press releases that go out as soon as a uh, allegation is made. Uh, inspections should be prompt, shouldn't be dragged on and last forever so that a company's all per perennially under a cloud of the specter of an investigation or an inspection. Uh, that an agency should declare when they've concluded an investigation and that the investigation is closed and when it has issued a finding of no probable cause so that an employer knows when it is time to move on and move forward. Uh, this is important for a host of business operations, including document retention, uh, the retention of, of uh, records and witnesses as well, uh, but also because the ability to contract often depends on having a clean sheet. Uh, and then finally, this, well, I shouldn't say finally, there's several others. This is just a summary list that agencies should not be permitted to withhold exculpatory evidence in the OSHA context. And, and this may be the topic of our next OSHA 3030. This could uh, come in the context of, for example, the redaction of witness statements or the uh, withholding of witness identities until the day of trial. Whereas in the federal court system in almost every state civil procedural rule, uh, the accused has a right to face their accusers and that discovery is designed to eliminate trial by surprise. So, so any thoughts about this uh, underlying, again, perennial underdog, this idea of a regulatory bill of rights? Look, these are all fine principles and, and there really isn't that, there isn't really anything about these that should be debatable, except I don't see any real path forward for them, certainly not in a legislative um, construct. Um, I think the interesting thing is an agency or a department could implement these on their own without any hesitation. They could declare that this is how we will proceed. This is how we'll handle these issues and put in place, you know, directions from on high 
that will tell the agencies and tell their field um, staff and, and all the other people involved in, in enforcement activities, this is how you shall conduct yourself. It could be done administratively. I mean, the fact that it hasn't been yet, I'm not sure why. You would imagine this is the kind of thing that you know Republican administrations would, would feel comfortable about, but they have not pursued it. So it will remain, I think, something of a, uh, of a goal um, probably for some time to come. Okay, so uh, on yet another issue, we're assigning dim prospects for the future of that idea. Well, you have future 30-30 conversations around it, you know. That's right. don't want to get rid of this stuff and then leave you with nothing to talk about. It gives a, well, there's a, a, a axiom called the Servati principle. Uh, it was named after my colleague, David Servati, who, when I started the OSHA 30-30 eight years ago, he said, don't worry about finding new topics. OSHA will always give you new things to talk about. Right, and right. And boy, that's proven to be remarkably uh, accurate, which brings us around to an executive order. And I think uh, one of the last topics that we're going to talk about, second to last topic, uh, an executive order that came out at the in the first few days of the current administration, uh, President Trump issued uh, Executive Order 13771, which essentially is widely referred to as a deregulation bill, and it essentially uh, called for the elimination of unnecessary, redundant, duplicative, uh, or no longer relevant regulations as a condition of implementing new regulations. Others call it the two for one rule. Uh, is this executive order in your view likely to survive the, uh, the elections coming up in two weeks? Nope, next question. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what can we say? Th this has been a, I'm not a fan of this executive order, even as much as I don't wanna see new regs issued or bad regs issued, but the two for one construct was never a clean idea. It, it, it worked off of impact as much as it did numbers of regulations. And what it's done is it's forced agencies uh, and departments to come up with, in some cases, very um, creative ways to describe things as deregulatory so that they could get out the regulations they needed to get out. Um, you know, we saw this in the wage and hour field in Department of Labor with the overtime reg. Um, OSHA did a, a rulemaking early on involving the, um, the record keeping standard. And, you know, they had to pretty much, you know, come up with reasons why they, ways to fit this into this executive order. So, I've never been a fan of this two for one exchange concept. I, I just don't think it works very well in the real world. And certainly if there's a Biden administration, I can't see how this, how this executive order survives. Another issue that you're assigning dim prospects for its future. Mark, you mentioned to me uh, earlier another regulation that is possibly Let's more intriguing. Let's back on that for just a minute, Manish, because whether I think it has dim prospects, the question remains, how should regulations be issued? What right. goes into, I mean, it's not so much whether agencies are issuing lots of regulations, it's whether they're doing them responsibly and uh, it, building them around proper types of data and respect for the, uh, the regulate those who would have to comply with the regulations. Well, I think that's right. And so the problem with the order is, while we all agree that there are some irrelevant or outdated regulations that need to come off the books, the idea of two for one is too prescriptive or high bound. An artificial construct. Right. And, and 
it doesn't really work well in, in the real world and it doesn't get to the to the core problem which is is the regulation under consideration being done correctly with the proper attention to detail and and support in, in the record that's right. the issue and you know we saw too many examples of that in the prior administration that we don't think met those requirements um but it's not because regulations are inherently bad it's that bad regulations are inherently bad well put well, you mentioned another regulation, uh, executive order that had come out uh, this year that it may have a greater intrigue level as we go into the uh, possibly another administration. And that is the idea that the agency OSHA should not issue guidelines that actually have substantive impact like a regulation. In other words, actually regulate using guidelines as their disguise in order to not have to go through the rigors of the uh, notice and comment rulemaking or the rigors of the Administrative Procedures Act and the OSHA Act uh, requirements for how a rule gets set. And that guideline, that executive order, I think is, is something that merits attention under no matter how the election turns out. Well, right. And that executive order um, plays off of a longstanding, um, <clears throat> not sure I want to say debate, but longstanding concern for how whether agencies are using guidance to do what they would otherwise should be doing through regulation. Um, the executive order actually talks about when an agency is expected or required to put out guidance for notice and comment. And it plays off of the structure of significance embedded in the longstanding executive order 12866 um, issued by the Clinton administration that describes regulatory burden. Uh, the guidance executive order sets up so that if a guidance um, meets the threshold for significance that plays off the same criteria as the significant regulation under 12866, then it's supposed to be put out for notice and comment. Um, I think the, the thrust of this is good. We want transparency, we want opportunities to be engaged in the question of guidance, especially when it rises to certain types of guidance. And keep in mind, guidance is basically everything that's not a regulation. So we have letters of interpretation, we have enforcement uh, materials, we have uh, FAQs, we have some things that look exactly like a regulation, except they say may rather than shall. Um, there's a whole spectrum of things that fall under the category of guidance. And, you know, how you issue that and what what the procedures around that are uh, will remain, I think, a, a subject for discussion and debate. But the thrust of the executive order that there is guidance that needs to be taken seriously and put through a process is, I think, a good idea. Right. And, and the agency was soundly rebuked in the ag retailers decision for trying to use guidance as a shortcut for proper rulemaking uh, when they just looked at their own rules and decided they didn't like them anymore. Uh, so I think that you're right, this executive order may be, uh, we finally have a candidate, you and I, for something that might survive regardless of the outcome hey, of the election. Don't go too far. I didn't nope. say the executive order will survive. I said the subject and the questions surrounding the use of guidance are likely to survive. Okay, fair point. I'm going to let you have the last word on that subject. Last subject. Uh, I am a little bit uh, disappointed when I reflect on how the 
position of Assistant Secretary of OSHA, the head of OSHA, has been handled during the current administration. Uh, frankly, I think there's a lot of people who would say it was unfortunate that because the, uh, the agency deserves to have a quick appointment and uh, to have a minimization of gaps between appointees. And, uh, and we all know the story uh, by now of how this hasn't been handled in an optimum way. Uh, Mark, I'm curious how you think the upcoming election might make a change or how the experience of this last process might make a change in how this position gets filled uh, after well, the election or sustained by the current. As we used to say in the Senate, I'd like to associate myself with those remarks of frustration as to how Scott Mugna was not confirmed. I think there's a fault to be found in pretty much every step of the process by just about every party involved, except for Scott. Um, I, I know a lot of us know him well, and I, I don't think there's a person among us who would not say that Scott was the ideal candidate for that position. Right. And it's a loss to the country. It's a loss to OSHA, uh, and then frankly, it's a, it's, a, it's a loss to employees where the agency wasn't able to be effective because Scott wasn't confirmed. Right, what, that's the point I often make, Mark, is that the workers and workplace safety was the real victim here, and I right. don't understand why that needed to be so. And this is to take nothing away from Lauren Sweat, who I, I admire greatly and, and I consider a friend. She has done more than anyone could be asked to do in the role she's been given, but Scott was a unique person, very ideally suited to take on that, that position and really, I think, bring some credibility and um, stability to the agency. And that's unfortunate that he was unable to, he was not given the chance to do that. Moving forward, I would look at the question of what happens in the Senate as to what type of confirmation process we may get. So. You know, if we get a Democrat administration and a Republican majority in the Senate still, um, you know, we may have a long drawn out confirmation process, or it may force the Democrats to nominate somebody who could be more more acceptable. Um, if it's a Democrat administration and a Democrat majority in the Senate, then I'm not sure there's anything that would stop them from confirming somebody that they like, you know, relatively quickly. Um, so, you know, looking forward, that's you know, then of course, if we still have a Democrat, uh, sorry, Republican administration and a Republican majority in the Senate, one hopes that they might have learned from their lessons and been able to be able to move somebody through quickly. Um, the, the, the amount of time required on the floor has been reduced. It's no longer 30 hours, it's a mere two hours. So theoretically, that would allow somebody to be confirmed more quickly uh, in a Republican and Republican uh, alignment. Um, but it's it's really I think it's quite a shame that we didn't see Scott get put in place there, um, and I hope that people have learned from that mistake. Or that the position of acting had been converted into a permanent position quicker. Well, uh, you, either way, my point is that the agency deserves, and the workplaces and employers and workers deserve a quicker it, process. There's always going to be a problem between someone who's been acting and made long-term permanent and someone who's confirmed by the Senate. There, there's still a gap there. Right, and, right. And again, not to take anything away from Lauren, but those history and skill sets are different than Lauren's history and skill sets. Well, but and my point is simply that the process should have happened quickly, whoever we're talking about. And, yeah. and I think uh, that, that emphasizes the importance of the outcome of the Senate election, as you said, because that is where 
things got hung up last time? It was, there's lots of problems along the way. The, the process did not go smoothly at, at any step of the way, step of the process. So with that said, Mark, you get the last word on today's OSHA 3030. And thank you again. The, uh, the process of delivering developmental issues in OSHA law happens more frequently than just with the OSHA 3030. You can catch more news in the intervals on Twitter at Rathmonish, on our LinkedIn pages, David Cervati, Larry Halperin, uh, I and the firm all have uh, LinkedIn pages. Keller and Heckman has its own workplace safety and health LinkedIn page. This program is rebroadcast as a podcast and you can catch it on your favorite podcast app uh, like SoundCloud, as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and I believe we're also on Amazon's Alexa as well. Uh, I won't say that too loudly or all of your machines will go beeping off right now. Uh, the next OSHA 3030 will be on November 18th, 2020 at 1 p.m., always on a Wednesday always at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And when you get the email inviting you to register, please remember to forward that on to three more people in your organization or at other organizations who are responsible for safety and health management or our in-house counsel responsible for safety and health compliance. Uh, our sister programs, the TOSCA 3030, the REACH 3030, and the FIFRA 3030 will be scheduled coming up soon. Uh, the dates are posted November 4th for the TOSCA 3030 and REACH 3030. If your organization is responsible for compliance under those laws, uh, please make sure you, you tune into those great sister programs. Thank you all for participating in this OSHA 3030. Thank you to our staff at Keller and Heckman for producing another great episode. Most of all, thank you to my friend and colleague across the street, Mark Friedman, Vice President of, uh, of Workplace uh, Policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, one of the great institutions, as you can tell by today's program, an institution that has its thumb on the pulse of just about every developing issue in workplace law and other aspects of labor law. Uh, and, and we're all thankful, everyone in the workplace community should be thankful for the contributions they provide and, and to the members who support it. So thank you, Mark. And until next month, when we all talk again, stay safe. Thank you, Ernest.